You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp Therapy Online. Life doesn't come with a user manual. So when life stops working for you, it's pretty normal to feel stuck. Imagine somebody who spent, oh, say, 25 years being really distracted overwhelmed by clutter, and fluctuating between being really into obscure ancient history and not being able to find the motivation to do the dishes. That person is me, and apparently, if there were a user manual to life, it might have told me that I have ADHD and should talk to my doctor about that. Therapists are about as close to a manual as we can get. Folks who are trained to help you figure out challenging emotions and learn coping skills. BetterHelp has connected millions of people with licensed, registered therapists for convenient and secure online therapy. It's convenient and 100% accessible online. No waiting rooms, no traffic, and not even endless googling of therapist near me. You just fill out a questionnaire and get matched with an appropriate therapist. And if it doesn't click, BetterHelp makes it easy to switch providers. Everyone deserves to feel their best, so get unstuck with BetterHelp. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com persia. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash persia. Welcome, everyone, to the History 
of Persia, Episode 5, Crossing the Hollis. When we left off last time, Cyrus II of Anshan had completed his revolt against, and conquest of, the Median Empire, overthrowing the king, Astyages, with the help of a Median general named Harpagus, and claiming the territory for himself. Cyrus made the defeated Median king an advisor in his court, married his daughter, and started rebuilding the Median capital, Ecbatana. He was trying to establish his rule as a continuation of the existing Median system. Before we move on, though, I want to announce an addition to the website. I've had some feedback from listeners that the family tree is getting a little confusing, and that's my bad. I've thrown out a lot of names, and not all of them are important, strictly speaking. So I've added a family tree to the top menu at historyofpersiapodcast.wordpress.com. On that page, you'll find a link and directions to download an accumulated family tree that you can navigate through and focus on how each individual is related to the others. The names in the official Achaemenid royal line are highlighted, and non-Persians are labeled with their place of birth. Going forward, I'll try to be more clear on who's who, which will get a little bit easier because by the end of Cyrus's reign, the Near East will be a few royal dynasties lighter. But moving on. The continuity that Cyrus worked so hard to establish was not absolute. In addition to his original title, King of Anshan, and claiming Astyages' title, King of Media, Cyrus claimed a new title, King of Persia, and I think that one needs just a little bit more explanation. After all, Cyrus was already a Persian, and already the reigning king in his home city of Anshan, and according to Herodotus, he already ruled over Persians, so what gives? Why wasn't he already King of Persia? It's possible that he was, but that seems unlikely because the Babylonian Chronicle calls him King of Anshan before defeating Astyages and King of Persia afterward. There are two basic ways to interpret the new title. One option is that it draws the distinction between the Persians being a people in and around the city of Anshan and the Persians controlling a true kingdom, describing the whole empire as Persia in the same way that it was previously described as Media after the rulers of the whole territory. That seems perfectly logical, but there is one other argument. Cyrus also claimed the title King of Media. Maybe that was being used as a synonym, as it was certainly used that way by both his successors and later historians, but it also seems possible that there was a distinction when Cyrus first claimed the Persian title. The primary suggestion that I've seen from historians for this version is that there was a second branch of the Persians, ruling the area north and west of Anshan, under Cyrus's cousins. As the story goes, this branch was founded by Cyrus's great-uncle Ariaramnes, the son of Taspes, like Cyrus I. The idea is that Cyrus only claimed to be king of Persia when he ruled this half of Persian territory in addition to Anshan, after Ariaramnes' son, Arsimes, willingly pledged his subservience to Cyrus during the revolt against Media. The family tree, as I've mentioned before, is a little suspect because Ariaramnes and Arsimes are the ancestors of the later king Darius, whose relationship to Cyrus may have been invented. However, this version of King of Persia is still entirely plausible, even if Arsimes and Cyrus weren't so closely related. However, the titles Cyrus used were probably a secondary issue for the leaders and armies of the newly minted Persian Empire within just a few short years of taking over media. 
while Cyrus tried to make the internal politics of media as consistent as he could, international relations proved to be an entirely different beast. First and foremost, Cyrus had to reassert control within the old Median borders. Our sources don't provide many details here, much like media under Astyages and his predecessors, the internal affairs of the Iranian kingdoms were not recorded in detail by outside sources at this point. But there are a few mentions of rebellions against Cyrus's power, just nothing specific. Cyrus's final consolidation over the Median territory also resulted in a shift in terminology for our Greek sources, that oddly enough, is shining proof of just how good he was at providing that sense of continuity to his new kingdom. From here on, the Greek sources refer to the Iranian people ruling a large territory to their east as Medes and Persians interchangeably until the fall of the Achaemenids to Alexander the Great two centuries later. Once again, this brings us to what the forces outside Cyrus's borders thought of his actions. Like I said last time, Babylon, which had become increasingly anti-Mede in the decades since they conquered Assyria together, was happy to ignore the chaos in Media, and even viewed Cyrus's success as a net positive for Babylonia. The other major power in the region, the Anatolian kingdom of Lydia, was less forgiving. The last time we discussed the Lydians, they had fought a war with the Medes, and subsequently, they had made peace and even an alliance through a marriage pact and a treaty that set the firm border on the Hollis River. Both of the kings who made that deal had long since died by the time that Cyrus was making his conquests, but the new Lydian king, Croesus, was not so willing to overlook Persian aggression. Croesus, the son of the king Aliates, who had fought the battle of the eclipse against the Medes back in 585 BCE, crossed the border with Media on the Hollis River with an army. The kingdom of Lydia had only grown wealthier under King Croesus. The rivers and hills of western Anatolia were rich with electrum, the naturally occurring alloy of silver and gold which the Lydians had already used to create the first precious metal coins by the time Croesus came to power. But those early coins were debased with additional silver and copper, and had no standard weights or purity. Croesus changed this, Metal workers had figured out how to separate gold and silver out of electrum by this time, and Croesus used that to create the world's first bimetallic coinage systems, with two denominations of coinage, one gold and the other silver. Both were standardized to ensure consistent value. Now, these coins weren't in common use yet as a recognizable currency system. Nobody else was really using coins, so it's not like there was an exchange rate, and a single silver Croesid, as archaeologists call the coins minted by Croesus, could be worth a day's wage for a regular old day laborer. However, coins with standard value could still be used for trade, just for a guaranteed metal value. With the aid of these coins, the Lydian kingdom became a major trade power, both through their own ports and land routes, via deals with the Ionian Greek cities that dotted the western coasts of Anatolia. Croesus himself became extraordinarily wealthy and famous in the Greek world for being a very generous Philhellene, that is, a foreigner who loved Greek culture, by patroning many temples and lavishing gifts on his allies and friends in Greece. The phenomenally wealthy King Croesus was a great patron of Greek temples, including an expansion of the Temple of Artemis at Ephesus, an Ionian Greek city on the Lydian coast, 
that temple would later be accounted as the most amazing of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The standard line that podcasters, writers, and professors alike are all supposed to quote here is that this is where the English phrase riches crisis comes from. However, it's also a phrase that I have only ever heard in the context of explaining who Croesus was, so make of that what you will. Of course, we'll keep talking about Croesus as he came into conflict with Cyrus the Great. Like everything else in this obscured and confused period of history, the why and when of Croesus crossing the river is up for debate. Basically, there are two options for each question. Let's start with why Croesus invaded Persia or maybe it's still media. Cyrus's kingdom at any rate. One option is to see this as a retaliation for Cyrus conquering media and a fulfillment of the marriage alliance formed between the Lydians and the Medes decades earlier. While this probably served as a convenient pretext if Croesus needed one, it was probably not his primary motivation. If that's what was happening, why would Croesus give Cyrus several years to consolidate his hold over Median territory? The most commonly suggested explanation is that Persian expansion was threatening. In addition to conquering Media and resubjugating former Median subjects in Cappadocia, Cyrus clearly wanted to push his borders even further. The Babylonian Chronicle tells us that Cyrus, now internationally recognized as the King of Persia, invaded somewhere in 547 BCE. Since the 19th century, this has been interpreted as the date of the Lydian War with Persia, but in recent decades, scholars have called this into question. As it happens, the actual name of the place that Cyrus is said to have invaded isn't legible on the clay tablet used to record the chronicle. So two alternatives have been suggested for that event. The first, and significantly more popular option, is that it is Urartu that the chronicle lists for 547. If you don't remember, that was the name of the kingdom in northeast Anatolia that had vied for power with the Assyrian Empire in earlier centuries, but was defeated and rendered insignificant by the beginning of the 6th century. By this time, the territory was probably overrun with Armenian tribes, but not yet called Armenia in outside sources. The other, less likely option for the 547 invasion is Cilicia, nominally a Babylonian vassal kingdom in southwestern Anatolia. In Cilicia, the local nobility were actually allowed to remain in control as client kings, paying tribute to the Persians, which doesn't fit with the Chronicle's further description that Cyrus killed the king of wherever he was invading. But both of those territories were conquered in this time period, and both would have extended the Persian and Lydian border beyond the Halys River, so both are at least plausible options for the missing name in the Babylonian Chronicle, and possible causes for Croesus to preemptively invade Persian territory. Of course, this still leaves us with the question of when, if not 547, this war actually happened. Well, the answer is still in the 540s. Lydia was almost definitely conquered before Babylon, which fell to the Persians in 539 BC. The initial war between Cyrus and Croesus was probably fought in the first two-thirds of the decade, because as we'll see later on, we know that fighting continued in Anatolia for several years after the first campaign. So that puts the Lydian War probably between 547 and 543. Or of course, maybe all this talk about Urartu and Cilicia is way off the mark, 
and the Babylonian Chronicle actually does record Cyrus's invasion of Lydia as 547. Aren't ancient sources the best? As unclear as the origins of this conflict are, once it was going, we have a pretty good image of the war for the time period. Lydia was closely tied to the Greek world, and Herodotus provides a very clear account. It is probable that the exact minutia is incorrect in some way. The histories were written a century later and largely reliant on oral histories, but to put that in a modern perspective, it's roughly the equivalent of gathering family stories about what people's grandparents or great-grandparents did in World War I, so it's not unrealistic but probably exaggerated. Seeing as he's all we have to go on for this event, I'll give you Herodotus's full story for the build-up to the war between Persia and Lydia. Of all the cities and temples in the Greek world that Croesus supported, he was most famously a patron of oracles. These were usually women based at a temple that could supposedly speak for the gods of that temple, often predict the future, or at least the gods' opinions of impending decisions. It was customary to bring a gift or a donation to the temple when you went to see an oracle, and a bribe for the priests if you wanted to jump ahead in line. Croesus, like most of the Greek world, had come to revere one oracle above all the rest. That was the Oracle of Apollo at Delphi, a small city on the south-central coast of mainland Greece. If a city or kingdom was going to war, many of them would consult with the Oracle at Delphi, which is exactly what Herodotus tells us Croesus did before invading Persia. According to Herodotus, the Lydian king was told that going to war with Persia would result in the downfall of a great empire. The king trusted the oracle and his gifts to her temple to have secured an accurate prediction for him, and thus he made plans for war. But just having Apollo's prophecy in his corner wasn't enough. Croesus knew that to make that prophecy come true, his forces would actually have to put in the work to make it happen. So he took no chances in building his army. He already had established treaties with Babylon under Nabonidus and the reigning Egyptian pharaoh Amasis. Amasis apparently did agree to send troops to reinforce the Lydian army, but Babylon, once again, did nothing. Nabonidus was still off in Arabia, and his son Belshazzar was running things in Babylon. You have to wonder if they were still hoping that playing all of their rivals off against one another would end up being a positive thing for Babylon. Croesus didn't limit his preparations to his existing allies, though. He reportedly hired mercenaries wherever he could find them, ranging from Arabs to Scythian steppe warriors. He also formed a new treaty just for this occasion with a Greek city-state on the Peloponnese, the large peninsula that hangs just south of the rest of Greece. That city was Sparta, a city with a reputation across the Greek world for producing the greatest soldiers, even at this early point. And their fame continues really even to today. There is much to be said about the Spartans in the context of Persian history, but not yet. Despite their treaty with Croesus, the Spartans will actually play almost no role in the upcoming campaign, but rest assured, they'll be back in due course. So now, we dispense with the build-up, and Croesus actually crosses the Halys, in or just after 547. But he did so at a pretty strange time of year. It was autumn, the very end of the regular campaign season, 
before all of those reinforcements he had just called could even arrive in Lydia. Maybe he thought the war would be short, or maybe that he could use this as an attempt to test the waters and find out what sort of man he was dealing with in Cyrus. Whatever it was, the Lydian invasion was initially successful. They seized the city of Pteria, the regional capital immediately across the border. They sacked the city and the surrounding towns, selling many of the inhabitants into slavery, which sounds horrifying and cruel because it is, but not markedly different than how most ancient kingdoms handled their wars, so don't get the idea that Croesus was all of a sudden seen as some kind of excessive tyrant. Cyrus was not going to stand for this blatant invasion of his territory. This wasn't a raid across the border to loot some small towns. This was an army. I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the U.S., I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch, and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors, and Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition, without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. By a foreign king capturing and enslaving a regional capital. The Persian Median force, commanded by Cyrus himself, made a beeline for Pateria. When the Persians arrived, they made camp and prepared for battle. The fighting lasted for most of a day, only coming to an end because the sun went down, and even then, it was a stalemate with heavy losses on both sides. Honestly, this leaves me kind of impressed by the Lydian force. If we believe Herodotus, they were facing 3 to 1 odds and managed to hold their own. Even if we don't believe Herodotus, Lydia was a commercial empire, not particularly warlike. Even aided by mercenaries, facing the significantly more martial Iranian force of Persians and Medes was probably a pretty impressive feat. After the battle, Croesus made what looked like a prudent decision to withdraw his army back into Lydia, planning to send his men home and encamp the mercenaries in his kingdom for the winter, before returning to the campaign in the spring. What he could not have anticipated was Cyrus's next move. The king of Persia pressed on, after giving the Lydians a head start, and crossed the Hollis River himself. 
the two armies apparently crossed the western half of Anatolia with Croesus unaware of the deception. The Lydian army stopped in an open plain just outside the capital city of Sardis. As they were preparing to break up the army for the winter, Cyrus bore down on them for another battle. All sources point to Croesus being caught entirely off guard. He had absolutely no expectation that Cyrus would do something as insane as invading a foreign territory in the winter. Even though it doesn't get especially cold around the Mediterranean, the temperature still drops, there are more storms, and there's no food to be pillaged from the surrounding farms. It's not a good time to be an ancient army, especially an ancient army far from home. It seems that Cyrus planned to try and crush the Lydians in one more battle, though, catching them before they could hide behind the walls of Sardis for another pitched battle that he could quickly and decisively end. Why was he so eager to charge after the Lydians? Well, one option is always that he saw the opportunity for tactical advantage. But there is probably another piece at play here. Cyrus just won his empire, spent several years solidifying his control over it, and was still untested on the international stage. A solid, quick victory, especially after the stalemate at Pateria, was exactly what he needed to solidify his political position. However, before I can fairly describe this next battle, I have to address one of the major sources for the life of Cyrus the Great that I have very intentionally neglected thus far, because Xenophon is our most detailed source for this event. Xenophon was an Athenian general, mercenary, author, philosopher, and political theorist during the late 5th and early 4th centuries BCE. Yes, he did wear quite a few hats in his lifetime. However, he is most famous for leading 10,000 Greek mercenaries home through hostile Persian territory after finding themselves on the losing side of a civil war almost 150 years after the conquests of Cyrus the Great. He will become an invaluable source to our narrative when we reach those events. But for now, we are stuck with one of his other works, the Cyropedia, or Education of Cyrus. Cyropedia is framed as a biography of Cyrus the Great, but in reality is a political treatise using the legendary status of Cyrus as a framework to portray Xenophon's ideal rational monarch. He portrays the conquests of Cyrus as a single protracted campaign against the Assyrians of all people, and characterizes Croesus as one of the Assyrian generals, essentially making the whole book more historical fiction than historically accurate. That's not to say Xenophon is a bad source overall. His other works are great within their genres, and even Cyropedia is an excellent source of classical Greek political theory. But because so many historical details are so clearly inaccurate, the historicity of everything described is called into question. Xenophon describes specific and clearly exaggerated troop numbers on both sides, giving individual counts for each type of unit on the battlefield, as well as enumerating how many men were contributed from different provinces and kingdoms. Overall, he assigns 196,000 troops to Cyrus, and 420,000 troops to Croesus. Both of those numbers are patently absurd for the time period and the campaign in question, and are in contrast with Herodotus's account that Cyrus actually had the larger force. Xenophon goes on to describe troop formations and strategies, 
He describes a wedge of Persian infantry and a group of archers firing over them, with cavalry set back behind them on either flank. Meanwhile, the Lydian infantry were a block, with cavalry on either side. The Lydian cavalry are supposed to have folded in on the Persian infantry, but then had the Persian cavalry fold in on them and drive them off, while the infantry made one final push against the Lydian army. Unfortunately, that whole description has to be discounted because of the numerous problems with Cyropedia. Herodotus's account of the battle also features the Lydian cavalry in a defining role. Herodotus says that the great power of the Lydian army was cavalry units with heavy lances, and that Harpagus, the Median general who had betrayed Astyages and went over to Cyrus last time, advised Cyrus to deal with this in a kind of weird way. Harpagus supposedly informed Cyrus that horses are afraid of camels. So Cyrus took the camels from the Persian baggage train, placed them in his front line, and when the Lydian cavalry charged, their horses saw and smelled the camels and then panicked. They freaked out and ran away, either taking their riders with them or throwing them off. This allowed the Persians to face the Lydians as a ground force and gave Cyrus the cavalry advantage. Now, I don't know if any of you out there know much about the relationship between camels and horses. I certainly don't know much, and there is shockingly little literature out there, go figure. This weird anecdote, and the historian's overall tendency to bend the details to create a more interesting narrative, has brought Herodotus's account into question as well. The fact that both of our primary sources for this event are so unreliable has led some to question whether or not the battle outside of Sardis even happened. To me, that extreme seems unlikely. Both Xenophon and Herodotus have some source for the battle, and Xenophon, while certainly aware of Herodotus' account, was pretty clearly not copying it. Personally, I think he may have interjected the strategy of a battle he fought himself to give depth to the story. So I think this battle probably happened, but also probably not in the epic detail provided by either source. Which is frustrating, but probably fair, because the outcome of the battle would also have been frustrating to Cyrus himself. Despite a clear Persian victory in pitched battle, King Croesus himself managed to slip inside the walls of Sardis and bar the gates, forcing the Persians to besiege the city. At least in Xenophon's account, it seems that the Egyptian forces sent to aid Croesus may have arrived by now, meaning this was the first notable conflict between Persians and Egyptians. Or, of course, there's always a good chance that they weren't there and were waiting for the spring campaign season like reasonable people. We know from Herodotus that the Spartans definitely hadn't shown up yet. They had actually gotten sidetracked by their own war back in Greece with Argos, another city-state and one of Sparta's most ardent rivals. Herodotus tells us that it took 14 days before the Greeks even found out that Sardis had been put to siege, and even then they decided to wrap up their war with Argos first. Despite not having much time to prepare... The Lydians were, initially, successful at keeping the Persians out of the city. Sardis was well defended, with strong walls sitting on top of a hill surrounded by lowlands. Just the ruins of the citadel are still an imposing sight on the surrounding area today. Herodotus tells us that the siege lasted for 14 days, and that a single soldier saw a Lydian climb down from an underdefended portion of the wall to retrieve his helmet, and the Persians were able to copy him and climb up that same wall. 
Could it have happened like that? Absolutely. It certainly wouldn't be the only time in history a regular soldier had inadvertently done something that exposed his fellows. But it's just as likely that the Persians were able to climb up on their own without seeing someone climb down. And it does seem a little weird that someone scaled the walls mid-siege just to pick up a helmet. Regardless of how the Persians figured out where to get through the Lydian defenses, they did figure it out. The gates were opened and the city was looted. Croesus himself was captured, and the oracle at Delphi's prophecy came true. Of course, it didn't come true the way that Croesus thought it would. The great empire that fell because Croesus invaded Persia was Lydia. So she wasn't technically wrong, and wouldn't technically have been wrong if it went the other way either. This is a pretty common trope in prophecies throughout literary history, from ancient Greece to now, that the prophecy, surprise, doesn't work the way that you were expecting it to, but the words still work out at the end. Probably just a literary trope on Herodotus's part, but also, if you were the oracle at Delphi, that would be a vague enough prophecy to not get you in trouble when it didn't work out in the way that you were expecting it to. Much like Cyrus's conquest of Media, the final item on the agenda before Cyrus could fully take over Lydia was doing something with the old king. By all accounts, Croesus was taken alive after the siege of Sardis. But did he live or did he die? Early Greek sources, mostly in the form of artwork and poetry, suggest that Croesus killed himself by self-immolation, building a funeral pyre, and then seating himself on it, still alive, while a servant lit the flames. The Babylonian Chronicle, if you go with the interpretation that Cyrus did invade Lydia in 547, says that the king of that land was killed by Cyrus. The Greek tradition, beginning with Herodotus, asserts that Croesus was kept alive as an advisor to the court of Cyrus. Later still, Theseus and Xenophon say that Croesus was made the governor or administrator of part of Media. Herodotus actually tries to have his cake and eat it too, and has Cyrus ordering that Croesus be burned, only to have Cyrus change his mind and Croesus rescued by divine intervention courtesy of Apollo. This shows that Herodotus was pretty clearly aware of the earlier tradition about self-immolation, but also aware of a later story where Croesus survived. Or if you want to be more cynical about Herodotus, that he invented the tradition of Croesus surviving in order to create a wise advisor stock character for his larger narrative of Persian history, since Croesus is said to outlive Cyrus and advise later kings. In this interpretation, the later Greek sources are just parroting the earlier historian. One thing that probably doesn't make sense is Cyrus ordering death by immolation. In the Persian religious tradition, called Zoroastrianism, Fire was sacred and not to be desecrated with human remains. Of course, we don't actually know if Cyrus himself was Zoroastrian, and when we talk more about Zoroastrian later on, we'll see that it isn't very clear what the Persians did religiously at this point, but even if it wasn't recognizable Zoroastrian orthodoxy, there is still reason to believe that some practices, like the sanctity of fires, were already present in Persian beliefs. So where do I come down on this issue? Well, there's an irritating lack of sources from outside of Greece. The Lydians and other Anatolians record no further mention of Croesus, nor do other inscriptions in the Persian Empire. 
in the Babylonian Chronicle is already unclear. On one hand, there is an obvious tradition of Croesus seated on a pyre that developed within the decades immediately following his defeat, and he is very clearly used as a stock character by Herodotus in later books of his histories. On the other hand, Herodotus does show awareness of this existing tradition and tries to reconcile it. And I'm not sure how much I can really buy into the idea that Herodotus single-handedly wiped out a pre-existing tradition, and no later historians knew anything about those pre-existing stories of Croesus's death. But I think the most significant detail in our historian's favor is that the artwork and poetry depicting Pyre of Croesus are earlier, but all from Greece proper, in the years immediately before the first Persian invasion of the peninsula, and all within the Athenian sphere of influence. Further, none of it actually confirms Croesus dying, just him being on the pyre, and one poem actually depicts Croesus being spirited away with his daughters to safety by the gods. We can't tell what the Babylonian Chronicle is talking about, and very little about the Greek record actually flat out says Croesus died. We also know that Cyrus granted clemency to other conquered kings in Media and Cilicia, so why not here? Even if things didn't go as Herodotus said, and Croesus didn't act like the character in his histories, I'm willing to come down on the side that Croesus lived, if only because the evidence for the alternative is so scant. And with that, Lydia became part of the Persian Empire, and Sardis became the capital of the new satrapy, essentially the Persian name for a province, under a governor or viceroy called a satrap. The key to the satrapy system is that the satraps themselves were always appointed by the king, almost always from elsewhere in the empire, and in these early conquests, that meant they were Persians or Medes. We'll talk more about the satrapy system down the line, once there are more provinces to govern, but for now, just know that the first satrap of Lydia is a Persian called Tabalus, probably one of Cyrus's military commanders, who took control of the administration of Lydia. Of course, Cyrus also had success with creating stability by maintaining a semblance of continuity in media. In Lydia, the king tried to replicate this by making a Lydian called Pactues, the head tribute and tax collector for the satrapy, also based in Sardis. While all of this was happening, from the time Cyrus first crossed into Lydian territory pursuing Croesus, there had been another element to the conquest of Lydia that I haven't even discussed yet. I almost want to call it another front, but there was no combat up to this point, just negotiations. Cyrus had sent envoys to the Greek cities on the coast of Anatolia. These were culturally and ethnically Greek cities that dominated the trade along the coastline and were functionally independent from Lydia. Croesus functioned as a sort of overlord, exacting tribute from all the cities on his coast and mediated disputes between them, but internally they were independent. Cyrus tried to get those cities to join him and revolt militarily against the Lydians. He had basically no success with that and ended up conquering Lydia by himself. So when he sent envoys to the Ionian Greek cities again, it was with one message. You are now part of the Persian Empire. Submit. Many of those cities were happy to accept Persian leadership if they could maintain their internal independence as they had under Croesus. Cyrus said no, they had their chance to join him and refused, so now they must submit fully to Persian control. A few cities, 
those that had been most influenced by Median culture up to this point, agreed. Many of these were cities that spoke the Dorian dialect of Greek on the southwest corner of Anatolia. Most of the Anatolian Greek cities, though, went into revolt. But Cyrus decided that his generals were more than capable of dealing with a few troublesome cities, and he went east to deal with domestic issues in Media and Persia, and to expand his empire into eastern territories in Iran as well. Once Cyrus had gone, though, Pactuas, the Lydian in charge of collecting tribute, took the tribute money and hired an army of mercenaries, launching Lydia into revolt with the Greek cities. So that will be the state of things in the next episode. Lydia is in revolt, the Ionian Greeks are in revolt, and Cyrus himself is conquering new territory on the eastern frontier. For now, you can find more information about the show, maps, and the Achaemenid family tree on the website. New episodes will be available there as well, or wherever it is you get your favorite podcasts. You can contact me with suggestions and feedback at historyofpersiapodcast at gmail.com, or find me on social media. On Facebook, it's The History of Persia Podcast, and on Twitter, I am just History of Persia. If you haven't already, tell a friend, share on social media, and leave a review on iTunes to get the word out and help the show grow. Until then, thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. 
Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.